We are going to finish the first section of Genesis. It's through chapter 11. So we're going to do 10 and 11 tonight. Jesus. Once again, we marvel at your character and your goodness and your faithfulness. Genesis reminds us of this cycle that our own lives seem to fall into. And the only constant is you and your grace and your mercy and your faithfulness. And so I pray tonight, Lord, as we look at a couple of chapters that can be hopeless, I pray that you would be once again our constant, that we'd be reminded that when we are unfaithful, you are faithful. You cannot deny yourself. So speak. May we hear. And I ask this in your name. Amen. All right. If you have read ahead, then you know in Genesis 10 and 11, it's mainly genealogies. So if I was to ask you, what is your favorite section of the Bible? Who here would say it's genealogies? You know, if I have a bad day at work, I come home and just meditate on Genesis 10. I read the names I cannot pronounce. I feel God's presence. It blesses me and encourages me. I love the genealogies. <laughs> For most of us, the genealogies are the place that we stop reading through the Bible. Like, forget it, I'm going to read a psalm. This is crazy. All right. Or the genealogies are something that makes us really like the next chapter. Wow, this, this next chapter is awesome. Why? I don't know why. Because that last chapter was hard. All right. They serve a very important purpose. So, in Genesis 10, it directly follows what event? The flood. Why would a genealogy right after the flood be important? It's showing that God says, be fruitful and multiply, and what happens? They're fruitful and they multiply. It's God showing, listen, the story goes on. The human project did not get derailed or stopped. It still goes on. The other thing that Genesis 10 shows us, it's called the table of nations, it's 70 nations. The other thing is this, it's demonstrating to everybody, we have the same root. Noah is everyone's great, 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 granddad. We're all united in this thing. So before God narrows down to Abraham, he makes sure and say, listen, I still have a plan for the nations because you all came from the same source. So, so it's, there, there's some really important reasons for it right in here. So what I'm going to do is, there's a big one at the end, we'll get to it, but um, there's a lot of names like I can't even pronounce. So I'm going to skip a bit in order for us to get through chapters 10 and 11. Let's jump in. 
verse 1, chapter 10. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Mattai, Havan, Tubal, Meshach, and Tiras. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Riphah, and Togarma, the sons of Havan, Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodanim. From these, coastal, from these, the coastal land peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans in their nations. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Ramah, and Sabteca, the sons of Ramah, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before Yahweh. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before Yahweh. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna, in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went to Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ir, Kala, and resin between Nineveh and Kala, that is the great city. Sometimes you'll have somebody teach and they'll grab like one dude and follow him for a long ways. I'm not going to do that. Here's the reason why. I think the text drives us to what they want us to notice. Who in this list gets the most room? Nimrod, right? The rest is just, this guy had this son, this guy had this son. Then all of a sudden it's like, then this dude Nimrod came and he was this dude that was a mighty man, a hunter before Yahweh. Therefore, instead of this, he built these kingdoms and built these cities. And it just, it goes on and on for this dude named Nimrod. So is Nimrod a good guy or a bad guy? There's a lot of debate on that. Actually, if you read commentaries, there's some that say he's a good guy and there's some that say he's a bad guy. Here's my thought on it. His name, the stem of it, which is the root of it, the stem of Nimrod in Hebrew means rebel, which for me gives maybe a little indication like, huh, he's a rebel. Okay, good guy, bad guy. The word hunter that's used here, it's an interesting word. It's sead. At times it's used in the Old Testament for actually hunting down humans. So is he a dude that hunts down humans? Is that what he does? Because this, um, he was a mighty man before Yahweh. That's a, that's a translation there that no one's sure about. Is it before Yahweh or against Yahweh? No one's quite sure. Mm, I'm not sure. All right, he is, it says in verse eight, a mighty man. That's the same term that was used for a group of people back in chapter six before the flood, the Gaborim. So he's one of those dudes, these, these dudes that whatever they are, they're mighty men, and after them, the flood comes. So I don't think that's all that positive for him. He builds these cities, Babel and Nineveh, which for the rest of the Bible, 
become the main arc enemies of Israel. They're the ones, Assyrians come down, take the 10 northern tribes. Babylon takes the two southern tribes. So they become the arch enemies of Israel. It would be like this. It'd be like someone saying, hey, this dude built North Korea, Iran, Russia, and Syria. We'd be like, he probably doesn't like America then. Well, it's kind of like that. This dude, he builds all these cities and they become the enemies of Israel. He builds, he is a, if you look back, he's he's the son of Ham. He's a Hamite who builds in Semite territory. So he's actually making his territory inside of land that actually belongs to Shem, right? So he's a usurper of sorts. So he's got all these things. You kind of start adding up. Hmm, that's interesting. He's a usurper. Kind of reminds me of Satan who has usurped authority from Adam and Eve, right? Ruling what he does not, ruling where he should not. But here's to me the most interesting about Nimrod. Tradition says about him, if you read, you can just Google his name. It comes up right away. That Nimrod married this gal named Semiramis. And they had a happy marriage, I suppose until Nimrod took off and went on a hunting expedition. While he was out hunting, Semiramis got pregnant. Hmm, that's interesting. (laughs) How do you get pregnant when your husband's gone? Well, she decides, I'm actually the queen of heaven, and this is divine. So this baby is a product of the gods, right? She becomes, Semiramis becomes queen of the heavens, or we call that today Ishtar, which is very close to the word Easter. And she's celebrated by eggs. And guess what else? Bunny rabbits. <laughs> so amazing. I love the Bible. It's so fun. <laughs> right? So she has this son, divine son. His name is Tammuz. Tammuz grows up. He goes out hunting and a wild boar kills him. But miraculously, he's resurrected. How about that for a story? And Tammuz, his birthday, happens to fall on December 25th. Dun, 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 dun. (laughs) Right? So you got all this with this dude Nimrod that the Bible actually highlights up. Like, check this out. So what you have, hydrocriticism, if you don't know know what that is, that is a way of looking at the Bible that is non-divine. They say, look, Christianity copied these ancient religions. It's not true. Christianity copied them. What do I think about that? I think Satan is the master counterfeiter. I think if you look at his MO, it's always been, I want to take the place of God, right? Isaiah 14. I want to put my throne up there with Yahweh, right? Genesis chapter three, what is he saying? He is trying to get in between the humans, God's Imago Dei, and God, and start saying, hey, listen to me. I have wisdom. I'll direct you. I know better. Listen to me. Follow me, right? You keep going throughout the Bible, and you see this battle, really. Elijah with the 450 prophets of Baal. It is a battle of who are you going to have allegiance to? If Baal is God, follow him. If Yahweh is God, follow him, right? You get to the New Testament, especially Revelation. In Revelation 6, The Antichrist, Satan incarnate, shows up on a white horse looking just like Jesus will look in Revelation 19. But he brings with him war and famine and plagues. And Jesus brings with him the new kingdom of peace 
and righteousness, right? So Satan, 2 Corinthians 10, 14 says, he masquerades as an angel of light. So I think Satan's just trying to, right in the beginning, interject his thing into the whole system to corrupt it and break it because he is the master counterfeiter. Matt, that's kind of scary. What do we do to make sure that we don't get deceived by him? You have to handle the real thing. You and I have to be handling the real thing all the time because it helps us spot the counterfeits. I'll give you an illustration. A couple of years ago, I went to the bank. I was gonna buy a little $1,600 car to drive back and forth to Portland. I was driving my Ford F-250 diesel, 350,000 miles, which just isn't a joy to drive that far. So I was gonna buy this little $1,600 car, went to the bank with my father-in-law. I get up to the teller. The teller's like, hi, Pastor Matt. I'm like, how are you? I said, I need to get $1,600 out. She grabbed this big stack of 100. She just goes, picks it off. Here you go. I went, what? She said, want me to count it? I said, yeah, one, two, three, 16, just like that. I went, I cannot believe you just did that. She said, yeah, am I gonna be a sermon illustration? I said, totally you are, man. I'm gonna use that. <laughs> How can she do that? She handles this stuff all the time. Why are you tellers, why, why are they so able to spot counterfeits? Because they're handling the real thing all the time, all the time. This book, it's meant to be read. And what I hope you start noticing in Genesis is this, there is a pattern that you begin to notice and it actually begins to form your brain in the way that you think after a biblical kind of way, that there is this pattern. It's just repeated throughout the Bible. We'll see it on Sunday in Genesis chapter 12. That's the pattern. It's repeated over and over and over again. God does really good things. Humans come, screw it up. God rescues it, does really good things. Humans come, screw it up. God comes, rescues the humans, does really good things. The humans screw it up. I mean, that's the Bible. You can go from cover to cover. And the end is the final rescue when God says, all right, I'm going to be rid of that stuff. Right? So by reading the Bible, what it does is it trains your brain to actually see these cycles in your own life and start saying, oh, I know what's happening. Oh, I know that. And I'm not going to be deceived by the lies of the enemy that will come to me during those times and say, you worthless, no good Christian, you whatever it is, just give up. Oh, I know this pattern. The Bible is meant to be read like that, continually pouring over because you handle the real thing. And it trains your brain to think in a certain way. And then you start seeing more in the Bible, more and more and more. It's just brilliant. It unpacks itself for you. I have a friend, he says this, it's the only book that grows with you. Every other book you will outgrow. Have you ever had favorite books in the past? And then you'll reread them. And you're like, why did I like that book? I've never said that about the Bible because it's the only book that grows with you. So, so I compare it like this. Being in God's word is this. It's like the bumps on Interstate 5 that when you start to drift, what happens? Brrr. Have you ever read a text in the morning and then throughout the day you're like, oh my goodness, that is exactly what I needed to know. That was the bump, 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 bump because I would have gone astray. So over and over the Bible says, it's a lamp for your feet. Keep in it, dig in it, read it, just pour it in you. It's like handling that money. It start, you start to spot what is wrong. Well, Matt, if... Nimrod and Semiramis and Tammuz, if they're the 
the foundations of Christmas and Easter, should we celebrate them? There's a, like an old book on it. If you want to read, it's called The Two Babylons by Hislop. It's this massive book. It's, it's unreal. It's hard to get through. I think I made it three quarters of the way and then I gave up, but it just details this religion essentially and follows it not only through history, but through the Bible. So if, if the roots of, of Christmas and Easter go back to this dude and he's a bad dude, should we celebrate it? Here's my answer to people on that. It's John chapter 10. Jesus goes down to the temple and he celebrates this feast called Hanukkah. You guys know what Hanukkah is? Here's what Hanukkah is. Hanukkah is not in the Bible, except for John chapter 10. It's not a biblical feast that God prescribes. It's extra biblical. It's outside of it. It's in 168, 167 BC, this madman named Achaeus Antiochus Epiphanes. He was the ruler of kind of Turkey on down to the Middle East. He decides he's going to start a war with Egypt, gets his army together. He thought he was God. Heads down to Egypt on his way down there. This old 80-year-old man named Gaius Papalius comes out in front of his army, massive army, dude who thinks he's God, and he says, stop. So Antiochus Epiphanes with his generals, they all get off, they come, what's the deal, dude? Get out of the way, old man. And this old guy, Gaius Papalius says, Rome says to turn around. And so Antiochus Epiphanes knows he can't fight Rome. Rome's too big. But here he is, he thinks he's God. He's got all his generals and all his armies and he's just kind of mad. He goes, I'll think about it. Gaius Papalius takes his staff, draws a circle around Antiochus Epiphanes and says, you'll give me your answer before you cross that line. I'm like, dude, that guy is so awesome. I mean, whoa. And so Antiochus Epiphanes turns around and goes home. But on his way home, he's angry. So he stops into Jerusalem, ransacks Jerusalem, goes into the temple, slaughters a pig in there, forces the priest to drink the pig blood, sets up an image of Zeus in there. It's called the abomination of desolation in Daniel. Just brutal. And then he makes this edict. You cannot keep the Sabbath. No one in Israel can keep the Sabbath. You may not read the Torah and you cannot circumcise your kids. So he was trying to outlaw the worship of Yahweh. And so he took these runners and sent them out to all the cities. Go tell everybody, this is my rule. Well, one of those runners comes to this little city of Modin. And there was this guy named Mattathias with five kids. I call him Matt with five kids. <laughs> He's the priest of the land. And the guy comes there and he goes, okay, here's the new rules. And to show that you are going to follow Antiochus Epiphanes, you need to come out here and you, and you need to make a sacrifice to Antiochus Epiphanes. Well, that's obviously anathema for a Jew. So Mattathias says, no way, I will never do that. This other guy says, I'll do it. So as he's going out there to prepare the sacrifice, this old Mattathias goes out, grabs a knife and stabs him. <laughs> Doesn't kill him, but just, Get that. you're not gonna do that. So things kind of go south there. He and his five boys take off. They get a rebel group together and they for two years start to fight against Antiochus Epiphanes. They drive him out of the land. So in 165 BC, they come into Jerusalem, they've kicked those guys out and they go to the temple, they purify it, clean it, and then they wanna light the lamp. But they have one day worth of oil and you cannot make, there, there's a prescription to make. You can read the, you know, the book of Leviticus. It takes a while to make that oil. It takes eight days and they only have one day worth. So they're stuck with, what, what do we do? Do we light the lamp for one day or not? They say, let's light the lamp. They light it. 
And it lasts one day, two days, three days, four days, five days, six days, seven days, eight days. It does not go out until they have more oil. And so they celebrate that, extra biblical, but really cool, historic event. They celebrate that at Hanukkah. Jesus goes down and joins in this celebration. And he actually uses it and uses the idea of that to say, listen, you want a savior? It's me. If you come to me, you will be in my hand and no one will snatch you out. Not Antiochus Epiphanes, no one. Not only that, but you'll be in the Father's hands and no one can snatch you out. So Jesus uses this festival and this time to say, I'm the ultimate Maccabean. I'm the ultimate savior. So I say the same thing. Man, I'm gonna leverage every time people are talking about Jesus to talk about Jesus. Christmas, Easter, redeem them. Like people have been asking me, what about the shack? You know, I don't know if we should watch the shack and the shack and all this. I'm like, what would you rather have them watch? Avatar? I mean, at least it opens up questions. At least I can talk. Well, what did you think about that? Well, let's go to the Bible. Man, it's brilliant. Noah, the Noah movie? I, I've never watched the Noah movie. I watched it. Why? Because I can have a conversation with people. Is that really what the Bible says about Noah? Hey, let's look. Because there's a Bible right here. Man, all those things to me, I'm going to leverage every cultural thing to try to talk about Jesus because he's the answer people are looking for. So man, I celebrate Easter. I celebrate Christmas. There are opportunities to talk about Jesus. I love them. I love Christmas. And here's why. December 25th, approximately right there. From that day forward, every day gets longer, right? It's not exactly there, but really close. Isn't that Jesus? Winter has been broken. Darkness has been broken. Every day, it's going to get brighter. And maybe not this year, because spring is not coming this year. But <laughs> normally, every day gets brighter and better. But, <laughs> but that's the idea. That's actually why, if you look back at, at about 150 AD, they said the same thing. That's why they said it. You know what? This is brilliant because it's Jesus. He breaks the winter. He breaks the darkness. He brings with him light. And every day, it gets lighter. So man, leverage every opportunity for Jesus. So interesting, this dude's highlighted. Verse 15, Canaan, his name is going to be synonymous with a group of people that are very, very polluted. Uh, there's actually been excavations where they would, when they would build a house, they would take a newborn child, they would put it in one of the walls of the house and then seal it over. Because according to them, they felt like that would make that house, whatever, blessed. So they become very, very perverted. So Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusites, and the Amorites, and the Gergashites, the Hivites, the Archites, and the Sinites, <laughs> the Arvites, the Semarites, and the Hamathites. I mean, just like, they love the ites. Um, there's this guy named Heth. He's the guy that ends up with the Hittites. If you know your history, the Hittites were a major uh, way to say the Bible was not real because there's no other ancient literature that talks about the Hittites. There's no other whatever engraving. There was no city found. And so for the 17th centuries, when there's a lot of that German higher criticism, it was, look, the Bible's wrong. There's no such thing as the Hittites. And the Bible's always talking about the Hittites. Well, guess what happened in the 1800s? 
they found a Hittite city and they found another Hittite city and they found a Hittite dynasty and they kept finding more and more Hittite stuff. They're like, oh my goodness, there's Hittites. So it's a really cool time to be alive when it comes to archaeology because archaeology just keeps on discovering like, man, the Bible is right. Like, wow. William Albright, who was not a believer, just said, when the Bible speaks of something, we can go find it. And he's not a believer. He's just like, it just, it is that reliable. Jericho is another great one. Jericho, through all the 1900s, from early 1900 till 1991, they said, Jericho, there's no way it happened that way. Until there's, you can get it. It's in, it's from, I can give, I can send you the article. But in 1991, in the Times International, there was an archeological review of this site that they had excavated in Jericho. And there were some things that they said, that's, we've never seen that before. Number one was this, the walls fell outward. Remember why? Remember that? Joshua took over for Moses. Can you imagine taking over for Moses? Like, there's no way you're going to succeed. You've got the guy that brings down 10 plagues, takes out the most powerful nation in the world. Now you're, Joshua's up. So Joshua's first city is Jericho. So now you've got 2 million people looking. How are you going to do this, Joshua? What are you going to do, bud? All the generals, yeah, what are you going to do? How are we going to take this fortress city? So Joshua actually runs away, goes out into the woods for a while, meets the captain of the Lord's army, and he gives him the plan. Joshua brings the plan back to the generals and like, okay, what are we going to do? Are we going to send in uh, the battering rams? Are we going to send in, what are we going to do? Well, we're going to send in the band. The what? The band. You mean like the rebel band? No, the, the band with top hats and batons and trombones. We're sending that in. What are you talking about? This is what, we're gonna do. what are they going to do? They're going to walk around the city really quiet. What? And then what are they going to do? They're going to come home. And they won't. Well, they're going to do that again and again and again for a week. And the last day, we're all going to kind of join them. We're going to all walk around. Okay, then what are we going to do? Scream. That's your plan? That's my plan. Well, you know, it works and the walls fall outward. And here's what's amazing about Jericho. They found tons and tons of wheat and grain still in the rubble. Why is that not normal? Because normally cities were defeated with a siege. And what happens in a siege? You eat all the food. But in Jericho, there's tons of this food left. Why is that? Because it happened just like the Bible says. Archaeology is just confirming what we already know about Scripture. So the Hittites totally happened. Now we get the descendants of Shem. To Shem, verse 21, also the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem, Elam, Asher, Arpachshad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram, Uz, Hul, Gether, and Mash. Arp Akshad fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber. To Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg, for he played soccer. <laughs> Doesn't sound like it? For in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Yoktin. Peleg, some people say there was continental drift. I don't think so. I think it's Babylon. So Babel happens during Peleg's lifetime. The earth becomes divided. Uh, they kind of, you know, go everywhere. And so this whole thing ends, verse 32. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies in their nations. And from these nations spread abroad on the earth after 
the flood. So this is kind of a broad sweep of history. Here's what takes place. You have these guys having these clans and these clans go to these places and this is how it happens. What you see in this is you really see three dads and out of these three dads, you can follow like their descendants. And what you notice is this, dads really matter. The trajectory the dad sets really matters to their descendants for many generations. I think we know that as dads. I think we know that our kids are like, Elijah is a mini me. Like he even thinks like me. This, this was the most scary thing that ever happened because I just realized, oh my goodness, like he is rubbing, I am just rubbing into him somehow. So it was like four years ago, we had these little ducks and the little ducks, they imprint on you if you've ever had little ducks and they follow you, they're really cool. So uh, Elijah, they imprinted on Elijah and he would like walk around with him, they'd follow him. And then one day he said, dad, how are we gonna teach these ducks to swim? Like I had to be taught to swim. You taught me to swim. How do we teach these ducks to swim? I said, it's no problem, man. There, there's this saying, like a duck to water. They'll just figure it out. And he's like, okay. But the next day he's like, dad, I'm not sure. I don't know if they're gonna be able to swim. I said, okay, fine. So we walked him down to our little pond. We get to our little pond and these ducks, they just jumped in and swam. He's like, oh, that's so cool. While we're standing there, I, we had two goats at the time. Both goats came right over to the side of the pond and they're like looking at the ducks, you know, swimming as well. And Elijah looks at the goats and he looks at me and he goes, dad, we should push a goat in to see if it can swim. I looked at him, I just started cracking up. I said, that's exactly what I was thinking, man. <laughs> I was thinking the same thing. <laughs> like I'm rubbing into him. Dads really, really matter. The trajectory that I'm headed. Psalm 127.5 says this, that, that it compares kids to arrows. I think that's such a great analogy. What's the aim of my life? How hard am I pulling them back? Am I willing to release them really into God's care when, when it's that time? They're, they're, that's just such a great analogy. It causes me to do this so much more because I know my failings. I do Psalm 139, 23 and 24. Lord, search my heart. See if there be any wicked way in me. I, some, I'm not even realizing that's actually being transmitted, however it does, to my children. And cleanse me from those things. Cure me from that because I want a good trajectory for my kids. Dads matter, parents matter. So now chapter 11, the Tower of Babel, what I think of it like is when you like click on something and it highlights, it does that for pay leg. Okay, so we talked about the division. Now it's double click on that, highlight it. We get chapter 11 verses one through nine. I'll read it and make a couple quick comments. We did it actually on Sunday. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And Yahweh came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men had built. And Yahweh said, behold, they are one people 
and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So Yahweh dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there Yahweh confused the language of all the earth and from there Yahweh dispersed them over the face of the earth. Um, I, I think parts of this are funny. Like they say, hey, let's build this big tower into heaven. And God says, hey, they're building something. Let's go down there and find it. <laughs> no one else finds that funny. I just think it's hilarious. I'm gonna tell you every time I read it, it's actually funny. God's like, oh, you built something. It looks like Legos. Let me go find that little Lego thing you've got. Um, verse six is interesting to me because it appears to be the problem God sees. And Yahweh said, behold, they are one people and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Now let's go down and confuse their language. Why doesn't God want this city and these inhabitants to accomplish lots of stuff? What seems to be the problem? I'll put it like this. And I kind of hinted at this on Sunday, uh, but it's this. It's they could get all that they wanted, but nothing they need. So you can do all these great things and build all these towers and do all this stuff. You can get everything you, you, that you think in your mind you want and nothing you actually need. So God here is saying, I don't want that kind of world. I don't want the kind of world where people can get everything they think they want and nothing they truly need. So I'm gonna confuse this thing a little bit. So if you look at Romans chapter eight, God says he has put creation to um, futility, that there's a futility to it. You can feel it, read Ecclesiastes, right? Um, Paul preaching to, at Mars Hill says to all these unbelievers, listen, God's made the, earth, the world in such a way that you are to seek after him and maybe you'll find him. That's the way things are, are put. Ecclesiastes 3.11, God's put eternity in mankind's heart. It, for me, if you add all those things up, you start to get the answer. God has, if you would rig the world now in such a way that we won't be able to get everything that we want and never get what we truly need. So he's made things so that we'll search after him. We have this, this Pascal put it as a God-shaped vacuum in our heart. That's the way God's rigged it. So no matter what you seem to accomplish, no matter how high you build that tower to heaven, you will still have this, uh, this angst, this, uh, and here's the reason why. Revelation 4.11 says that our purpose is to bring pleasure to him. Now we can fight that and we can say, I hate that and whatever. That's what, how you and I were designed. And ultimately our fulfillment will come from when we bring him pleasure. And if you think about that a little bit and concentrate on it, it it's really cool. It means this, number one, when God created us, it means he actually wants us. I don't want you to miss me. I don't want all these things, these tower buildings. I don't want that to interfere in, the, in your ability to come and find me. 
That's Acts chapter 17. So I'm gonna rig world in such a way that you can actually find me, that, that you, you can come and you can know and you can learn of me, that he wants you and he knows you. The Bible says this, he knows the hairs on your head. And bald, bald people always tell me, yeah, it's easier for God to count them for me. I say, no way. What happens is you get older, you have the same amount of hair, it just moves like to your ears and your eyebrows, right? You just have like, what is all that hair coming on my, my nose? What in the world is happening to me? <laughs> it's crazy. So you still have the same amount of hair, it's just in a different location now, it's your ears. God has rigged it in such a way, I think, and it happened right here, I'm going to make sure that no one lives a life where they get everything they want, but nothing they need. So that's my answer to that. All right, so verse 10, we now pick up Shem again. So it's like this was kind of inserted in there. Hey, we highlighted on Peleg and what happened with him. Now let's get back to Shem again. These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Arp, Akshad. Of course, that name's gotta be in there like a ton of times. Can't be just once. It's like 50 times in here. Two years after the flood, and Shem lived after he fathered Arp, Akshad, 500 years, and had other sons and daughters. When Arp, Akshad had lived 35 years, he fathered Shelah, and Arp, Akshad lived after he fathered Shelah 403 years and had other sons and daughters. All right, you can just read them. Shelah has Eber. Eber has Peleg. Uh, this is a different Peleg. Peleg has Reu. Um, Reu has Serug. Serug has Nahor. Nahor has Terah. And this is where we get back into, here's where Genesis has been heading. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. And Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now we're getting close. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Notice how it slowed down. If you read this, all of a sudden it's like the brakes got put on, and we start repeating names because they become real important. Now, these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now, Sarai was barren. She had no child. You're a Hebrew reading this many years ago. You would read these names and they start saying something to you. Sarai literally means wife of the moon god. Terah means moon. Milcah is a title for Ishtar, who's the daughter of the moon god, according to the Babylonians. What does that tell you about this family? If I'm naming my kids Gaia and Thor and Neptune and Pollux and Castor, what do you know about me? Besides I live in Portland, what do you know about me? <laughs> right? I, I, I have a pagan kind of side to me. I, I'm, I'm, I like this. So 
The, the name of my children reflects something. So all these names, what it's telling these people is, this is a super pagan family. Super pagan. As pagan as they come, right? They're marrying women who are probably somehow connected, priest daughters or something. It's a, it's a very pagan family. That's what this is all telling you. Keep that in mind, right? Joshua 24, read Joshua 24, because Joshua picks that up when he speaks to the people. Hey, listen, Abraham was a full-on pagan idolater. That's what he calls him in Joshua 24, all right? So the other thing that's fascinating that is like a screech of the brakes, because uh, the, from chapter 10 all the way to chapter 11, verse 29, it's been, this dude had this son, this dude had this son, this dude had this son. All of a sudden, verse 30 tells us, now Sarai was barren. She had no child. That's, okay, something just happened there. Throughout Genesis, keep this in your mind, there was a constant war against God's promises. Whether it's the land, whether it's descendants, whether it's blessings, they are in constant jeopardy. You can just see it. There's always one of those things that's in jeopardy. So right here we have, uh-oh, she's barren. Uh-oh, jeopardy. All right, so verse 31. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son, Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldees to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Um, you've seen through this probably the shortening of lives, right? So now we're down to 200 years from 900 with Noah. So there's been this kind of this slow decline of the lifespan of humans. Now, why is that? Could be DNA. You know, DNA starts to, you know, degrade and each generation gets a little bit more stuff in it. Maybe it's environment. Maybe it's just sin. Maybe sin now is having a collective effect on people. We still don't know biologically, really, why we die. We can figure out the mechanisms, but, but the fundamental question, why do we die? Right? And there's a massive fight against death right now. So if you know Google, Google has a fight against death. They started a company, it's called Calico. It means California Life Company. And they are pouring billions of dollars into stopping death. So Sergey Brin, one of the founders of Google, was reading this book and he was in it and it said he's gonna die. And Sergey Brin, when he, was, when he was told about that quote, said, no way, I'm not dying. So he is not planning on dying. It reminds me of like, this goes back forever, right? Egyptians, why'd they mummify? Fighting death. Why'd they put these massive kind of, they, they, you know, all this stuff in their food and their honey? Like had, they had all this, why? We're fighting death. Cryogenics, right? What, what is it? it? We're fighting death. Modern mummification. We've always had this angst about death. I say, my thought is it's an echo of Eden. We know we were never designed to die. We know we were designed to live in God's presence forever. And something fractured that. And we still go, mm, mm. like we don't like when other things die. Like this duck got hit on a road and I, I'm like, ah, oh, poor little duck. No other animal does that. The lion does not do that when it kills the antelope. It's not like, oh man, just trying to get back to his mom, poor little guy. Like, but that's in us, like death is unnatural to us. 
All right, so you have that. Death is now coming faster, if you would. So let me just finish by saying this. Here's what these two chapters are supposed to do. It is supposed to press something into the reader. And very often now we skip things, we're so fast, we don't think about it. Here's what it's supposed to be pressing into you and me. Sarai is barren. This family, full on pagans. What you're supposed to be thinking right now is, oh my goodness, this is hopeless. God's project for humanity is hopeless. Shem's line, which is supposed to be the godly line, the seed of the woman, supposed to bring that seed of the woman. It's hopeless. The light is going out. They're all pagan. It's dying. She can't have kids. There's no hope. Chapters one through 11 is supposed to do that to you. We've seen the cycle over and over. It's repeated, keep thing. And uh, oh my goodness, when there was a little glint of hope, now it's been snuffed out. All that is supposed to set you up for chapter 12, verse one, when what does God do in 12, verse one? He speaks, right? What is in your memory now in Genesis, what should that take you back to? Chapter one, right? It hopeless, formless, void, nothing. Then what happens? God speaks and what happens? There's light. That's what you're seeing this. This is what I'm talking about. The Bible shaping the way that you think, shaping the way that you start to perceive your life. Man, it seems hopeless. It seems dark. It seems like there's nothing. Oh, that's when God's gonna do something. I'm waiting for his word. It's a shaping Like the Bible is built that way to shape you and me the way that we think. So this has just brought you to utter hopelessness so that when you read chapter one or chapter 12, verse one, God speaks, oh, there's hope. It's a brilliant, brilliant thing. I think so often what happens as believers is we kind of get stuck in chapters 10 and 11, building towers with confusion and ah, I don't know what my life is about and I keep doing this thing and ah. Or there's nimrods around. All of us have nimrods around. Just kind of people that were like, why in the world does he do well? He's a pagan, he's a moron. Why in the world is he doing well? Why don't I do well? I'm so much better than him. I'm a God-fearer. He hunts people. He's a rebel. And he's making money hand over fist. It's unfair, right? Most often we will find ourselves in these two chapters, right? I think so. Let me read for you a psalm and then one final thought. Because the psalmist found himself in that same position. It's Psalm 73. Verse one, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. I love that. It's just this statement of, I know this to be true, so I'm going to say it, and then I'm gonna get to how I really feel, right? God is good, praise God. Now look at, but (laughs) as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. 
Why is Nimrod succeeding? I know you're good. I know your promises, but I just can't figure out why this is happening right here. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and they find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there any knowledge in the most high? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocent. For all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. (laughs) I love that Psalm. How honest is that? I love how God allows real honest Psalms into his inspired word. God's not afraid of it. God, I don't understand this. I know you're good. I, I get that. You can tell me that all day long. I don't see how it applies here. But then verse 15, it says, verse 17 says this. That's how I felt until I went in to the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Man, it didn't make sense to me out there. And then I came in around God's people and heard God's word. And I prayed and I had fellowship and then understood. I was shaped in such a way that once again, I got hope. That's why gathering together is so important. That's why God actually, if you look at the Old Testament, God God puts a system in place for his covenant people. Sabbath day, festivals. Get together, talk, share, read, immerse yourself in this because you need it. If not, you'll go Psalm 73. If not, you'll look at the Nimrods. If not, you'll forget There's a chapter 12, verse one. You'll get stuck in barrenness, deadness. Oh no. We need to be reminded over and over of really what matters. That Jesus gave one life hack. Like I've been saying this so much since I discovered it. Jesus gave one life hack. If you wanna be great, how do you be great? Serve. Serve the people around you. Matt, that's how you do it. Oh my goodness, I forgot that. I was looking at all these other things, looking at the Nimrods and the, the Babels, and I'm thinking, oh, I gotta do all this stuff. And no, no, you don't, Matt. If you wanna be great, serve the people around you. Oh, thank you. That's so much easier. And every once in a while, I think culture gives us a hint that it actually works. Maybe you saw this. I have it cut out at home. I think it's brilliant. It's from Dartmouth College. About, it's, it's in the New York Times. You can get it if you want. It's called, uh, Check This Box If You're Good, is the article. But it's about a person that, that allows people to come to Dartmouth College, which is an Ivy League, you're talking premier, top 10 university in America. And she says this, uh, there are so many talented applicants 
and precious few spots. We know how painful this must be for students. As someone who was rejected by the school where I ended up as a director of admissions, I know firsthand how devastating the words, quote, we regret to inform you can be. So she got this letter from what she considered to be a mediocre applicant, and he wasn't going to make it in. Guess who the letter was from? It wasn't his mom. It was a janitor at his school. Listen to what the janitor writes. The custodian wrote that he was compelled to support this student's candidacy because of his thoughtfulness. This young man was the only person in the school who knew the names of every member of the janitorial staff. How awesome is that? He turned off lights in empty rooms, consistently thanked the hallway monitor each morning and tied up after his peers, even if nobody was watching. This student, the custodian wrote, had a refreshing respect for every person at the school, regardless of position, popularity, or clout. Over 15 years and 30,000 applications in my admissions career, I had never seen a recommendation letter from a school custodian. It gave us a window onto a student's life in the moments when nothing, quote, counted. That student was admitted by unanimous vote of the admissions committee. That's what we need to be reminded of. Every person counts. And our life hack is we serve. And no matter how dark it is, there's always a chapter 12, verse 1. There's always a chapter 12, verse 1. So Jesus, I pray that our minds would be continually being shaped by your scripture. That each of us has Psalm 73 moments where we're perplexed. We know you. We know you're good. But it just doesn't make sense. I pray that we'd be those that are quick to sanctuary with you. Quick to study the scriptures. Quick to be around your people. Quick to be reminded of our purpose and your plan and your faithfulness. So would you go with us this day? May we, we return to homes and jobs and families and neighborhoods as ambassadors of your kingdom, proclaiming your name, following you. So fill us and empower us in that. And I ask this in your name, amen. God bless you guys.